This is Philip Meyer, welcoming you to another episode of Talking About Platforms. We present and discuss relevant discoveries from the field of platform research. Hi, I'm Daniel Trabucchi. In every episode, we have a guest sharing with us one of his or her latest papers on platforms to make it accessible for everyone. And with that, let's jump right into the conversation. Yeah, hello. Hello, hello to another episode of Talking About Platforms. Uh, two very exciting guests today, uh, Professor Martin Kenny. Hi, Martin. Uh, Professor John Seisman. Hi, John. And my regular co-host, Daniel. Of course, hi, Daniel. Hi, Philip, and welcome to our guest. Yeah, let me quickly introduce our guests for today. Uh, professor Martin Kenny is a distinguished professor in the Department of Human Ecology at the UC Davis. Professor John Seisman is a professor emeritus for political science at the University of California at Berkeley. Uh, Martin and John co-direct the Berkeley Roundtable on the international economy and regularly publish together most of the time um, about the rise of the platform economy and the future of work, of course, in top, different top academic journals and different disciplines. So um, very, very distinguished academics. Daniel, what would be your first question to, to both of them? Thanks, Philip. Well, my first question would be our usual first question. This time, for the first time, we have two guests. So I'll ask Martin to, to go first, but then I'd like to have an answer from, from John as well. And the question is actually pretty simple. The goal of this podcast is to talk about platforms. We know that platforms are literally everywhere nowadays, but we also know that different people see different things there. So the question is, What's a platform to you and how you end up studying platforms? Great. So uh, I think for me, uh, the platforms I am interested in are the online. And I think John and I agree. So I'll just, he'll, he'll tell me when I mis misrepresent him. Um, uh, are the online platforms. Uh, I, both John and I have been interested in Silicon Valley from different perspectives probably since close to the beginning of our careers. And so we certainly know that Microsoft was a platform, that Cisco were platforms, that Intel is a platform, a la um, uh, Mike Cusimano and Annabelle Gower. Those are not our particular interests, though we had interests in those in the past. I think it was uh, both of us became started to become interested in, in this, in from my perspective, because I studied the venture capital industry and I uh, saw the rise of these firms, Yahoo, of course, is now gone, Google, uh, Amazon, et cetera. And I'd been studying them since 2000. Around 2012, 2013, uh, I became quite interested in um, what these All platforms, because I've been reading Annabelle and, and Mike's work, um, uh, what these platforms meant to society. And, and I came at this basically from, from the perspective uh, of um, uh, Mike Laglieta's Ecole de Regulation School, and are these platforms setting up something beyond Fordism? 
Uh, and going back in history, John had written, and he can speak about manufacturing matters. And then a, a, a person, Richard Flora, and I had been writing about the Japanese system and the potential of Toyotism, which uh, people at the Wissenschaftszentrum then picked up and uh, sort of got into a debate around what Toyotism meant. Uh, then I had sort of left Japan, started to study, again, returning back to Silicon Valley. And I began to dawn on me that these platforms, as they organized more and more of the economy, were becoming fundamental in some sense, like Ford, um, uh, like Toyota, but that was only in the manufacturing center. And what we saw with Google and, and uh, Apple and Microsoft, uh, uh, Microsoft as it became a platform, moved online, right? Remember that wonderful memo in 1996, I believe it was, when Bill Gates wrote about the internet, I think he called it tsunami or something like that. So I'd already been aware because of all of that, and I'd studied Netscape. So, so that, so Basically, I started to write these things, and then John and I got together, uh, sort of 2014, and started to think, well, gee, does this mean, do these platforms mean something larger? And then uh, we wrote the uh, Issues in Science and Technology uh, paper. It's now been widely cited, The Rise of the Platform Economy. We were writing that in 2014 and 2015, so a little bit before the wave uh, of folks who started to take this from platforms being, you know, a business model, sort of Mitt and Zod and all of those folks, to platforms becoming something very fundamental. And Josie Van Dyke's work, we read that also and said, oh, wow, right? I think that was her 2013 uh, book. But it had, she had not yet catalyzed this into thinking about this as a way of organizing a cap, uh, the capitalist system. Well, that's sort of how I was drawn into it and then how John and I sort of got together in about 2014 and sort of puzzled for about a year, year and a half about what that, what does this mean? And, and, and then I think that catalyzed the the uh, the paper that came out in Issues in Science and Technology. Uh, with that, I just turn it over to John for, for his sort of his view of what happened. Well, I think that's a pretty good summary. I think the uh, distinction, first of all, that Martin's making between uh, what have been called uh, innovation platforms like uh, uh, the Intel things and um, the, the digital market platforms, which is really what we've been focused on, needs to be made very clear because in many cases, people confound the two uh, and they are two separate discussions, both important. I don't mean to put them in a hierarchy by any means, but they are separate. So uh, it's uh, um, to some considerable extent, this discussion of ours has been, as Martin says, on digital uh, uh, market platforms, online digital, online digital market platforms. Well, they're online if they're uh, market platforms. So, um, you know, the uh, the other half of that has been something of considerable interest over the years that uh, uh, Bree has been functioning and working. For those of your audience who don't know, 
Three was founded in the middle of the U.S.-Japan trade wars 4,810 years ago, uh, but quite quite literally in the first of the U.S. of the semiconductor wars. And uh, the people who helped, uh, who in inspired us, were conversations with Bob Noyce, who founded Intel, Jerry Sanders at uh, uh, AMD, Charlie Spork at National, and David Packard and Steve Jobs. So, in a literal sense, we've been following this. And the original uh, platforms were the ones that were the ones that were being built by Microsoft and the like. But our focus here is, has been this, and in a real sense. Uh, pulling together what Martin has said, uh, one of the key questions is to what extent do platforms fundamentally change the character of market competition? To what extent do they change in a broad sense the role of the state? And to what extent do they in fact ultimately change uh, the role of what is um, uh, particularly in Europe loosely called capitalism? Uh, uh, you know, so in a real sense, we've been after those questions. That's been part of what uh, uh, drives us. Obviously, there are a set of issues around data and AI. And I say that because an important part of what drives these platforms, makes them so powerful, is both the data that they collect and the power of the AI tools to analyze and therefore target people with this. So the discussion of platforms immediately leads into both uh, the issues around data, data privacy, uh, into the questions are around, um, uh, around AI. It also leads directly into issues around competition policy. I mean, Martin's excellent article on uh, dependent entrepreneurs, uh, that is that people no longer completely exist competitively if they are not, um, uh, in fact, well-situated in the platform world. And the dominant platforms are as the debate over how much income can Apple or Amazon take out of those who are playing on their platform um, actually take the rules and regulations of their participation uh, defines the marketplaces as Martin has made uh, quite clear. And uh, an aspect of that from our vantage is that the discussion of platforms has very quickly led from a discussion about competition policy, because it is in fact, as we know, very hard to regulate or to govern these systems as competition policy, because which market are they in? How much share of what market do they actually have? Uh, and their power is being exerted in different ways that aren't captured by the classic issues, nor by the classic definitions of what are the outcomes. In other words, price uh, and consumer welfare, the Bork, uh, creation of capitalism, if you will. For those in your audience who don't know, Borpork was a Supreme Court justice whose uh, decisions around competition policy shaped much of the debate. Uh, what's uh, nominated Solicitor, Court, not yeah, firm, Solicitor General. General, uh, who, who, and in a sense, uh, embedded the Chicago School uh, in much of American law. Um, so now the question and what we're writing and writing with John Chaffee and others is, um, you know, to what extent do we move from post hoc competition policy to, uh, in a sense, uh, uh, regulatory strategies for governing these kinds of, uh, of animals? And before I turn it back to you, Daniel and Martin, I would say also one of the areas where we've been very um, focused is what are the consequences of this for labor? 
uh, and for uh, and for work. And the latest, the follow-on paper to rise of the platform economy, the paper, the platform economy mature, matures, was really inspired by that question of what are the consequences uh, for labor. So once you're into this platform uh, discussion, you're really into the character of what is capitalism, what's the role of the state. You can't avoid it. So, so I think uh, just to sort of bring this back around, if one wants to put it in a Marxian framework, at at one level, uh, you know, it's it's volume one, which is labor and capital, and that relationship, and you know, a lot of the attention was uh, was uh, focused, as you know, very early on um, on Uber, and you know, the delivery operations because of how they transformed uh, labor that was in a contractual relationship in, into labor that is, uh, you know, on a gig. So the gig, the further gigification. And then the second uh, part of this is, if one wants, value capture. Who gets to capture the value? That's sort of circulation, if you want to put it in volume two <laughs> terms, which is uh, who gets to capture what goes through that circular emotion, and, and they're the platforms as they gigified and, and transformed work, uh, uh, transformed transactions to go across the platform and transform the innovation process in many cases, because today so many people innovate on the platform, innovate through the platform, the app store, but uh, et cetera. So, so you, so it, it so it's what's so fascinating about the platforms is they were able to attack sort of both of those and start to transform both of those. And, and John alluded to a paper uh, that we wrote with uh, Daphna Beerson, who's now a PhD student uh, at Berkeley, uh, at Harvard. Harvard Business School. Um, we looked across um service sectors of the NAICS codes, the industrial codes, there's about 550 of them. We found that 60% of them, 68%, uh, had platforms penetrating that sector, either directly or indirectly, either doing the transactions across the platform or focusing transactions. Uh, so so that what, what we saw is that such a large part of our entire economy today is has become platform organized. And then that has meanings because over time, the way platforms evolve, they sort of, they get into a sector and then they start to um, uh, transform more and more parts of that sector. If you think about the whole value chain in a sector, they start to absorb more. And, and we wrote in that paper also about Amazon and how Amazon has expanded from doing one thing to doing many things. So, so I think this is an ongoing set of res researches that we, we are actually continuing to do now in the agricultural sector to look at this impl implications for the agro food system. Thank you both of you for, well, telling us your, your view on this very interesting work world. When I was reading your, your piece, I was kind of surprised by the immense work you've done in, in measuring and assessing the impact that platforms have 
on everything, basically. And I was wondering, what's your take? What's your position? Um, if, you, if you stand in front of people managing traditional companies, people from the industries you were mentioning, like agriculture and so on, what should they do, in your opinion, regarding platforms? Is there any way, any suggestion you would have on how they can leverage this new way of creating and capturing value? Is there something that, in your opinion, they should do right now? Well, so the, the first thing, my advice to them, and, and, and that was with the Donato Cotolo and Andy Argadon, in the Sloan management review we uh, wrote a paper is um, obviously <clears throat> there are tactics, multi-homing, uh, make sure that you're not dependent on a single platform. You're, you will be competing <clears throat> in a platform organized world, but there will be multiple platforms. I think the next um, thing that all firms must do is engage with their governments because the countervailing power to the platform will come from the state. Uh, now, some states are in, almost incapable of acting like the U.S. state. Other states are already acting like the Chinese state uh, in reaction to the power of the platforms in the overall society. And there it's not only just the economic part of society, but it's as Josie Van Dyke talks about, and we're talking about with John Chaffee in the paper we're uh, written with John Chaffee about political power. And, and so I think that is probably where the battles are, are going to be fought out at the most strategic level, and, and also a paper we wrote on uh, uh, Polanyi, a Polanyian perspective uh, in Sociologica on, on uh, the, platforms the platform transformation of society, uh, shall we say. So I think the political realm and the realm of the state is going to be absolutely vital because the power of these platforms now is, is has gone so far that small firms or even you know the Italian Confederation of Industry or whatever the German analog is, is not powerful enough in and of itself, even if they could all agree to do something, to do it. So that actions will have to come through the state. And we're seeing that, of course, in Germany and France. The EU is doing a lot of talking about it still. Uh, so maybe they'll do something also. And in uh, our and, view, oh, sorry, Martin. And, and fines, which we've now found that the EU has done lots of them, billion-dollar fines are essentially irrelevant. But I was going to pick up from what Martin was saying. Uh, in our view, uh, more to some extent, we have some diversion on exactly uh, how to proceed with, with some of this. But um, the EU, Europe is, in fact, quite important. There's uh, the broader question that Europe's in some sense trying to ask itself, which is uh, what does uh, uh, technological autonomy or 
sovereignty actually mean. Uh, in many of these domains, I think the realm for European action or even American action is somewhat limited. In this area of regulation of platforms, Europe can be and is uh, being a leader. Um, and I think it's quite crucial in part because the uh, major platform companies uh, are not European in origin. Uh, now, in many cases, the Europeans, uh, in fact, uh, uh, are concerned about that, but it also creates an opportunity because at, at that point, they're foreign lobbyists as opposed to native-born lobbyists uh, over a number of these issues. And as powerful as they are um, and as much funding and, and resources they have, it is different. So that we're, I'm hoping uh, that in some sense, a European action um, uh, moving forward on this can define the terms. Um, and I say that because, in fact, the Chinese actions on this won't uh, set the terms uh, in a real sense, in the same way uh, for the uh, broader, uh, for the broader uh, Western uh, capitalist economies, uh, partly because it is an attack, a political attack on the power of oligarchs um, in that sense, um, which is entangled with the power of the platforms in the West as well. But I think it has a, a different flavor. So I think Europe, it's a European opportunity, a European challenge. And I do hope that uh, you guys um, make it happen. It's, it's, oh, it's, it's, it's your job. Well, I think John and I have a little bit of uh, a different perspectives on this. I think the Chinese model, I think he's absolutely right, Western Europe and the U.S. will not be influenced, but it's clearly already influencing India, um, uh, Russia, and some of these other economies that are not insignificant in size. India is no longer an insignificant country. It used to be, but it is not any longer. Um, so China is influencing all of those. I think the other thing that the Europeans will have to think about, and I, I don't have the, the answer here, uh, and um, I'm not sure anybody does, is these platforms are now infrastructure. They're the same as the water system. And this is Plantin, uh, I'm mispronouncing his work, his name, uh, French name, Plantin, perhaps, <clears throat> work calling, calling these, calling them out as infrastructure. What does infrastructure mean? If it's infrastructure, that's a very different uh, regulatory problem than competition in, in, in the traditional sense of the world. And does one regulate or does one nationalize? I'm not saying they should be nationalized, I don't know. But in many countries, the telecoms, the water was nationalized. They've all gone through denationalization as the neoliberal wave, the Washington consensus has swept over even Europe, but all, all the rest of the world. And now, and I think this is the argument where John, I, and John Chalky do agree, is the, the Washington consensus neoliberal solution is now no longer as powerfully believed religiously as it was. Now, what comes out the other end, I, I, we don't know. I think Europe has the potential, of course, to play China and the US firms off against each other. It hasn't yet done that, but that is a potential that Europe 
the EU, if could con could conceivably uh, do, and then really become perhaps a global model for for regulation. It's a little. Can hard. I yeah. can I jump back? Um, but in this notion of infrastructure, because we need to distinguish in that the conversation between, in a sense, just physical infrastructure like roads and bridges uh, and utilities, uh, whether it be water, electricity, uh, Internet and the like, because Internet in that sense is uh, fact a utility. And once we say that, then, in fact, it really is a question of what are the alternate ways of the state addressing them for the public interest. Uh, and it's not automatically clear that a uh, nationalization as opposed to regulation is automatically a uh, perfect solution. From long years with France Telecom that I, uh, living in France, I never lived in, in, in Germany, uh, state ownership of that utility doesn't always produce particularly wonderful, wondrous outcomes. So, um, the, and in some ways, the, uh, uh, setting aside the ideological content of the Washington consensus, uh, the uh, a privatization of a number of those uh, utilities uh, really was breaking up a administrative logjam that was in the way of any kind of technological uh, uh, progress. Now it may need to reverse itself and go in a, uh, a different direction. Um, I, it's a, I think it's a wide open question. And I think uh, these particular debates will, I think that the arguments in general about what should be, as Martin, you're saying, uh, I agree with you about what should be a post-neoliberal uh, economy are a lot of hand-waving. The real question will come how these kinds of issues are settled. And in their settlement, uh, we will then find justification that defines the ideology going forward. Um, I don't think the ideology is going to define the outcomes. I think it will be an outcome of the, cho of the uh, choices in this particular political economy. I think when you when you started uh, saying that platforms as business models falls a bit too short, it's much more platform like the one the big ones that we are discussing have characteristics of markets, organizations, even regulators, right? Um, and I, I really like the like the discussion around is it, when is it an infrastructure? Is it an infrastructure and like who needs to have like regulating power of infrastructure that then might become essential for the, the users because they depend on it so much, right? But talking about the users and, you know, here in, in Germany, we have this long history of uh, labor union and organization to, to build these uh, counter forces um, to, the, to the central organization, right? Um, do you see something similar like growing in the in the platform economy that users or complementers, even though they are often competitors, especially on the like complementing supply side, do we see some organization as another way of like preparing them, themselves and trying to be like a regulating force as a user? Well, on the complementer side, in and of themselves, it's very, because they are constructed as competitors, uh, it's very hard for them uh, to organize themselves. Uh, here's where the role of the state, uh, you know, back to Klaus Offen, those, right? The state 
can help organize groups, be they unions. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt, there were unions, but Franklin Roosevelt also um, supported unionization to some degree or allowed it to be to happen. And so, so one has to, I think, go back to the role of the state if you are going to, for example, help organize complementers such that they could push back against the platform, uh, you know, or or create new rules. The state can create rules as to what complementers can do and what the platform can require or not require. Platforms used to require uh, most favored nations. And in Europe, that's now been forbidden. Now they've kind of gotten around it, uh, the, the platforms, but one could think about how the state could regulate them and redress the balance between the platform and consumers and the platform and uh, creators, complementers, Amazon sellers, et cetera. But I think the role of the state is going to be critical here because I don't think individual on any side of the platform are capable of organizing themselves sufficiently to actually be a counterweight in and of themselves without the role of the state. But John is a political scientist, so he could speak to that better than I. Well, I mean, one way of looking at this is how did competition policy, antitrust policy in the United States, competition policy in Europe work? It certainly was for the most part not the quote unquote users. Uh, uh, it was, in some cases, it was mass political movements uh, that, in fact, uh, in different places pressed for some form of uh, response. Uh, but it was action from the state that changed the games. Uh, so the question I don't think is in business terms, can uh, we have complementers or others organized to try and take on uh, the platforms or in the marketplace? Because I doubt alone. That. Alone. I doubt that. That's not going to happen. Uh, the question is, to what extent uh, will uh, they, in, in a sense of mass political movement, shape uh, the political debate? Uh, in that case, the issues around platforms and disinformation are quite crucial uh, because it's pressure that's coming not just from the left, but from the right. Uh, so that uh, consequently, what the nature of the regulatory approaches will be are a little less clear. In other words, it's uh, parts of the right saying that uh, Facebook and others are uh, discriminating against them, uh, you know, just as the left is saying that Facebook and its actions, uh, in fact, helped elect Trump. Uh, everybody's against them, but nobody probably will be able to agree on exactly what the regulatory rules will be. It may be easier to do that uh, in Europe. Um, and again, the variety of approaches to competition uh, uh, and how to get competition uh, is, is was radically different in Europe and in different parts of the United States. I mean, certainly part of the French motivation in um, dealing with the Europe, with German entrance into the EU back in the beginning was that it did force competition not amongst some French giants. There weren't any but uh, amongst French cartelized kinds of organizations that suddenly faced German competition. And that was quite a conscious effort on the part of the French state. So I think uh, as Martin's saying, following the, the, the political economy with the emphasis on political uh, uh, of, 
of this story is is going to be uh, quite crucial. I mean, Kathy Thalen's work on that work that we've done uh, go in that kind of direction. And interestingly, a piece that uh, Laura Tyson and I are finishing up on AI and work with a with a touch on platforms, uh, basically saying, what are, how do you define the objectives? Should we be focused on jobs or good jobs? Uh, be, uh, so the whole way in which the uh, debate is, is formulated, I think, uh, is going to be uh, crucial. And folks like all of us, in that sense, can uh, help by providing the frameworks and the language which may get picked up by different kinds of political interests. But, we're not going to mobilize those interests on our own. None I mean, of us, I meant collectively. I mean, I think you can already see it in the German publishing industry uh, uh, regarding uh, being paid for snippets from Google, et cetera. So you're already seeing sectors, Australia, advertising, different sectors are already mobilizing and getting some regulation or some controls over the platforms. And I, I think this, this will just uh, grow. It'll grow in the United States. I mean, you see Lena Khan now in the FTC. Uh, China is the same thing. And John, I know, doesn't quite agree. But in China, the, the same thing. The banks were the ones that got upset about Ant Financial and eventually got the state, <coughs> the state to move uh, under pressure from groups. And all of the states are acting. India, in the retail sector, pushing on Amazon is another example in a different environment. Well, well, well. I would say that the discussion was definitely huge and it, it was like uh, the evolution of the world of platforms. So we started with, with Amazon selling books and we end up talking about uh, the global equilibrium and, uh, and, and these huge uh, mechanisms we are, we are looking at. You know, usually we try to end the podcast asking uh, what's the future of platforms in, in your opinion. But I would say that today we already ended up there. We already end up talking about platforms as, as infrastructures, talking about the possible alternatives that could regulate such a complex environment, such a complex world. And probably you've been very effective in listing the various models, maybe it's too much model right now, but at least the uh, possibilities that are emerging among uh, America, Europe, and China and Asia more, more broadly. Let me ask you one last thing. We are almost running out of time, but your chat was so interesting that we had to let it flow, absolutely. You were mentioning some of the things that actually got myself involved in research in platforms at first, which is the usage of data for AI and, and similar things. I was taking mainly a business model perspective, but still, uh, you were going in, in, that, in that direction. And you were mentioning uh, Facebook, uh, the, the regulation on data and so on and so forth. I would be very, very interested in knowing your position, even just in a couple of words, on, on this phenomenon of data privacy and the issues related with the usage of data by, by these companies. 
What do you think about it? What's your personal position? What's just your thoughts there? Well, you know, I'm fairly cynical that uh, data privacy uh, is going to be possible uh, for a number of reasons. One is the data is so fluid and flows so easily. The other is that increasingly, uh, and John can speak to this, the AI is able to fill in, even if, you know, I don't have your name and the more and more computer scientists are doing these studies. I give you, I give you them five pieces of random, seemingly random, I'm making this up, or 10 pieces of random data. And with that, they can figure out it's you uh, and so much about you. So, so I, I think we're probably in a world, and this then again goes back to the role of the state, is should the private sector have this kind of data or should it be the state? And then the state forbids the private sector from having X, Y, keeping whatever X, Y, Z data. If you look at the, <coughs> the recent Chinese privacy regulations, The state is going to get that data, but increasingly they're going to take it away from the private firms. Let me jump in. Let me jump in it because it's a good transition point. Uh, the first thing is, is that I think one needs to emphasize in discussing the Chinese case, how much of this is about political control by the party uh, and not really about economics. So it has huge economic consequences, but I, I think that's a part of why it won't be an analogy. But I want to jump away from the mechanics of what can we do about this, which is a difficult debate and opens up a thousand doors all by itself, to a, a comment that, in fact, uh, education uh, from uh, primary school through university is going to have to start teaching people about what data actually is and how, in fact, uh, Uh, it can be it can be used. Uh, the fact that there's now a new division of data at Berkeley uh, is a reflection of the need uh, to train people uh, running from uh, undergraduates who are just you know entering and maybe in music uh, to understand what can be done with the AI tools to steal their intellectual property uh, through those who are going to go ahead and build. Uh, 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 next generation tools. So I think it's partly an issue of uh, broadly edu uh, recognizing we've really entered this fundamentally new uh, era of which platforms uh, is one a very powerful orchestrating tool, but by no means necessarily the only one uh, that we must be aware of. The, the one thing I think Martin and I both would want to say is We look forward to hearing from those who have uh, want to have a conversation about these issues uh, and have an ongoing uh, a dialogue uh, around the uh, these various questions. And we, I certainly want to thank all of both of you uh, for having put this uh, together. It's great fun. We we will definitely definitely do that. Uh, thank you so much for for coming and uh, I think this conversation shows very beautifully why I enjoy like the papers that you write together so much because I think you agree on the core things on many core like ideas 
but you disagree also on on, on several uh, ideas and I think this yeah uh, is displayed beautifully in this like rich uh, rich um, yeah conversations like it, it feels like conversations between the two of you uh, between the two of you in the, in the pieces. It actually is. Martin and I approach these common issues in somewhat different complementary ways, which in fact makes it great fun. Uh, and not just political science versus sociology. It's just, uh, you know, uh, my our, our instincts about where to look first. I mean, we agree on what the whole has to look like, but where we look first is oftentimes somewhat different. Okay, thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talking About Platforms. To support our work, you can rate the episode or leave a comment on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to hit the follow button so you don't miss out the coming episodes. If you want to look up at the papers we have discussed or other topics we addressed, visit talkingaboutplatforms.com. There you can find the show notes and get in touch with us. Until next time, when we're again talking about platforms.